Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fully Grown Podcast, Ministry of Turner Christian Church. I am Pastor Jack. I am Pastor Rachel. And I'm Pastor Matt. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome into the Fully Grown Podcast, the Ministry of Turner Christian Church. I'm Jack Holvey, and I'm joined here by Pastor Rachel and Pastor Matt. And the Advent theme for this week is the topic of joy. And so we're going to start off by just kind of going around and and, and sharing what what our favorite, our most joyful moments of, of the Christmas season are uh, for each other. Yeah. For me, it's music. And, and what it makes me think of that is on Sunday night, we were all standing out in the cold rain singing songs. And I think if that had been anything other than Christmas songs, it would have been a little less joyful. <laughs> um, and uh, I, there's just, and, and I think it might be, I, I, I'm, I genuinely don't know if Christmas songs are special or if they're just infused with special memories. You know, like, are they actually different from other songs that you listen to throughout the year? I don't know. They seem to have more meaning and that could either be because they're special songs or just because they're the songs that are tied to all those memories and all those moments and that emphasis on hope and joy and peace and love. Um, but the, the music is just kind of soaked that up for me. And so, you know, standing outside in the cold, cold rain uh, that I'm not used to because I'm not from the, 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 um, this side of the um, Cascades, uh, singing those songs was still joyful. So I, I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I think for me, it's spending time with family. Um, you know, pretty, we get together on, on Christmas Eve as kind of the larger family um, and eat seafood chowder and uh, smoke brisket. And uh, that's, that's what we have for our meal. And it's just a, a really good time. And I love spending time with my family. And so that's, that's really where, you know, I just experienced really true joy with, with them. So, so, yeah. Along with the conversation on joy, um, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. We've had a whale of a time um, <laughs> discussing joy amongst ourselves, uh, just in terms of preparing for this conversation. And so um, we kind of have an idea of where we're going to go. Um but just in, in in full disclosure, it's been it's been difficult to figure that out, um, and I think it's because joy can be such a complicated thing in the midst of a season where maybe sometimes you feel like you're supposed to feel joy, but you don't, mm -hmm. and so um, balancing that is difficult. Um, and so we're just we're gonna we're gonna give it a shot. We're gonna see how yeah. this conversation goes. Well, the challenge that we've been having is. Um there's such a wide range of situations that people will be in as they're coming into the Christmas season. And there are, there are times when I have been caught in some teeny little first world problem. That is not a big deal that I've let suck me into being in a bad mood and being a jerk. And somebody needs to come along and say, Hey, this is not a big deal. You need to pull yourself up and you need to work on it. And then there are other times when we are, um, experiencing such deep um, trauma, pain, real loss. And, and those moments um, need to be handled with such care. And, and it's a completely different situation. And so talking about joy and how people can find joy in a one podcast episode, the, just the first half is, is really hard to find, um, to, to talk about and figure out what we're going to say. 
um, that that's what I was really struggling with. Yeah, and it's it's such a complicated subject when you think of weighing what what people need to hear in the moment, but then also weighing what 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 truth says, what the, what scripture says. Um, and balancing those two things and, and reaching a conclusion where you feel as though, um, hey, this truth has been spoken in this conversation, but also we have been gentle with how we've handled this situation with this person because they're going through something real, they're going through something hard, and they are going through something that is impactful, not just for right now, but for the rest of their life. And, and weighing those two things can be difficult sometimes and saying, you know, this is this is what Scripture teaches. And I don't think Scripture is insensitive in how it teaches things. Uh, I mean, James and Paul and people like that can be sometimes, but um, not all the time. Um, but also weighing those two things, you know, people and, and Scripture and, and truth and how do we put these two things together is can be difficult and can be tricky. And I think that's something that we have been kind of having a conversation about. So, and I think along with that, you know, God, God can redeem any situation, but not everyone is prepared in the moment to, to hear that. And so weighing those two things, the truth and how we handle, um, how we are dealing with people is, is important, um, and can be difficult. I think there's actually a scriptural precedent for that. I'm I'm fairly certain I did it. We talked about this story recently in a sermon about how Jesus deals with Mary and Martha, um, or he, how he encounters them after the death of Lazarus, that he he talks with Martha, but Mary is in a place where she's not ready to talk, and he just cries with her. And so Jesus has this, he recognizes the different places that they're in and meets them where they're at and doesn't try to give them all the same answer or all the same solution or approach. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I think it, it's just so important that when we use words like redemption, you know, we, we don't just throw them around um, and offer them up as a, as a platitude, um, which is not what you were suggesting, but just as a reminder, because a lot of times when people hear the word, well, well God God is the redeemer or here's that, that God redeems situations, they often think God is going to fix the situation to the way that I want it to be fixed in the way that I think it should be fixed. And in this broken world, not all is going to be redeemed in this lifetime. Yeah. And um, I think that's that's so an, such an important perspective, and and one of the ways that um, that we love one another is doing what Matt said is that when we come alongside people before we we speak um, truth, we listen first, and we listen to what's actually going on, and we understand some of the context of what they're trying to share. And then when we have an opportunity to say truth, we can um, just, uh, you know, speak in hopefully in, in the ways that makes the most sense for the situation, not um, not watering down what God has to say, but finding loving and caring ways um, to convey things as people need to hear them, or sometimes to not convey, but to cry alongside. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah, like you said, when you use the word redeem or redemption, you know, you'd be kind of clear in, in the in the process that you mean with that. You know, I don't God isn't gonna take a, a bad situation and just like turn it turn it make it good. Like he doesn't make a bad situation good. Um what he often does is he takes a bad situation and what happened is, you know, he 
redeems that somewhere along the line in ways that we weren't even expected for him to redeem it and to not necessarily make that bad situation good in the future and looking back saying, oh, that ended up being a good thing, right? It, there are a lot of bad things that happen that are always going to be bad things. Um, but what he does do is he said, is he allows us to be a part of, of his working and saying, hey, that bad thing that happened to you, guess what? Like that is something that you can now um, maybe use to teach someone else or or it can be something that, um, you know, maybe increases your faith in some way. And, you know, sometimes with those bad things that happen, um, that's not the conversation immediately after that bad thing ha- happens isn't, hey, God will redeem this someday somehow. The conversation is, um, could be, I'm here to cry with you. I'm here to, to you know, to to mourn with you. Um, that can be the initial conversation. The initial conversation can be, uh, I'm here and I love you. Um, Jesus loves you. Um, you know, and those are really hard conversations. I don't think the immediate conversation is, hey, get over it because it's going to be redeemed someday. It's, hey, I'm here and I love you and I'm here to cry with you. Um, but also recognizing that some someday a conversation can be had that, hey, God God is working through this. God is working through you still. Like it's, it's not this bad thing that happened to you doesn't diminish your value. This bad thing that happened, you know, God can still work through you despite this. So, and I think part of the the joy of Jesus is that He doesn't leave us where He finds us, and and so He comes and He cries with us, and then He guides us to something else, you know, or he comforts us. And through that healing, we learn something or, you know, he provides us with new community or he brings valuable relationships or he draws us to scriptures that deepen our understanding of, of God in the world. And, and there's this sense that this very clear sense, um, in the scriptures that when we encounter God, um, we are being transformed and that transformation process is, is continual. I, um, I was talking to a woman this morning who was um, discussing the way that God has changed her in the last decades and, you know, things that she picked up each decade. And is that not such a joyful thing that we serve a God who, who says, you know, this is where you are today, Rachel, and I love you so much right here, but we're not going to keep you here. Yeah. I think there are, there are nuances in the way we answer these questions that are really important. And especially when we end up using pat scriptural passages and we, we sometimes smooth them over in unhelpful ways. One of the, cause as you've been talking, the verse that comes to mind for me is about um, how God works all things together for the good of those who love him are called according to his purpose. And the way we often use that is to say, all things are good. You know, to say God, like everything that's, and maybe we don't say this, but we kind of imply it that, oh, you just misunderstand what you're dealing with is secretly a good thing, but you can't see it yet. And so someday you're going to look back and see, oh, this was a good thing all the time. But that's not actually what the verse says. What it says is that God works all things together. And that doesn't say those things are good. What it says is that the 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 evil that that human beings do and the trauma that we endure is not the last word and that God is working so that the things the bad things that happen to us are bad. That's that's and God would be the first one to say those things are bad. Those things should not have happened. And yet God is more powerful than them. And so he is able to to find us and to work through us and to repair us. And 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 our stories don't have to end 
with any of the bad things that we've ha- that have happened to us. And I think that's an important distinction that you guys have been been um, talking about. That it's not saying they were secretly good things. It's saying that God, through the miracle of His power and will and love, can take bad things and and uh, can take something that is broken and work with it and make it new. And um, the story doesn't have to end with what we do to each other. Which I think, too, uh, shows me that God, it, none of these bad things stem from God, right? God is not the source of, of evil. Um, and so, which is encouraging to me, and I can find joy in the fact that we serve a God who, you know, good stems from. He is good and he is just, um, but he can also work things together that are bad for the good of those who love him, which, you know, is... Um, is encouraging and brings me joy and also to realize that God is not the source of evil. Yeah. I think, you know, that sets up a, us up really well for, for the Christmas story. When we think about um, the brokenness and <laughs> despair of humanity and then God doesn't leave it there. Mm-hmm. Let's have, let's have a miracle. Let's have some transformation. Let's have a baby born. So this next segment, we are going to be asking some questions um, that are raised in 1 Samuel. And so I have a, a few questions, and Rachel has a question that we are going to be asking Pastor Matt. Then we'll just have some, some discussion about that. So my, my first question is in relation to the Ark of the Covenant that um, you talked about a little bit in your sermon. And I just wanted to know, apart from what you shared already in the sermon, are there any other specific rules um, that, the, that were... Uh, pertain to the Ark of the Covenant that the Israelites had to follow? So there actually aren't many rules about the Ark um, in the Bible. In fact, because like it, it seems to be more just a general sense of what it meant to treat something as holy in that time. Kind of like um, the way we actually, the way we treat flags. It's interesting that the way we treat flags, there there is actually a document, the flag code, that tells you how to treat flags. We don't follow that except for parts yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, but we generally seem to have a gut sense for what it means to treat something with respect. And that's generally how we treat flags. Um, with the Ark, it seems to be that way because you actually can open the Ark. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been able to get the stuff in it that's inside of it, right? And you can move the Ark and things like that. Uh, one thing is you're you're not supposed to touch it directly. Uh, you're supposed to carry it base with its there's poles that are through the the eyelets and uh, there's a famous story about they put it on a cart which is not how you're supposed to carry it and it almost falls over and a guy touches it and dies but there must have been other occasions where people touched the ark like the, it couldn't have gotten into the places where it got and 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 things like that if it wasn't touched and I don't think we can expect that the Philistines all knew exactly how to handle the ark and yet none of them get killed by like direct contact that kind of thing so it seems to be that you're supposed to treat the ark with respect generally and and so the things the places where god intervenes is where they're being disrespectful it seems that they you know like the israelites got the ark and they peeked in it out of curiosity like they didn't understand they didn't treat it as as the vehicle of god's presence they treated it as a curiosity and 
So that seems to be what God's reacting to rather than following specific rules. But the only real rules that we know is there were uh, supposed to be carried on poles and it was supposed to be carried by a certain family of the Levites. And uh, everything else would just seem to be stuff that they knew and didn't need to write down. Um, but God is very, takes it very seriously. And uh, as we saw, and that, that seriousness seems to be in what the ark reflects, you know, um, that's why it's, it's interesting in the, when you get into something like, um, Indiana Jones as a Christian, what do we believe would happen if you found the ark and opened it up? Um, because if, because we, there, it's not the vehicle for God's presence anymore. And so, um, the, the box isn't magic. It just, it has a meaning that God has given to it. Yeah. You're supposed to respect that meaning. You know, kind of randomly, you mentioned Indiana Jones. In terms of the the arc that they portrayed in the movie, is it mm-hmm. pretty similar to what the arc would have actually looked like, or is it pretty different? It's very similar with one difference, which is is a mistake that most Christians make too, is the angels are wrong. Um, cherubim are not, there are actually no, there are no angels in the Bible that are human beings with wings. There are angels on, when they come to people, they are human beings but they don't have wings. And in heaven, when they're depicted in heaven, they are hybrid creatures. So like seraphim are, you never see their body. They have six wings and actually the name means serpent. So it's possible that they were envisioned as snakes, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> that messes with my head a lot. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, snake, flying snakes, <laughs> which is also actually, cause I, I think we, I've talked about it in a sermon recently, how I, I don't follow the normal interpretation of who Satan is in the role he played. But one of the arguments for the snake in, Genesis being Satan is the fact that if Satan was a seraphim, he would have been that's connected with a snake. Cherubim actually are look like sphinxes. They would have had um, a lion's body, wings, and a human head. So that's what should be on top of the ark. Um, but other than that, I, and I'm not sure. I don't know if they got the exact measurements right. I'm that I don't know. But generally, they were pretty accurate. Yeah. And then I'll, and. In the tomb, I do. I also know that in the tomb where they find it, R two D two and C three P O are carved into the hieroglyphics. That has oh. nothing to do with your question, but it's a trivia right. that I know. <laughs> it's a thing that I had in my brain, and now it's out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you, man. <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but if people want to hear more about the Ark, they can go back and listen to our Advent series from last year. Correct? Yes, we we talked about the tabernacle during Advent, and so there was an episode on the Ark. Okay. So. Yeah. Check that out if you want to learn more about the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah. Um, what I wanted to talk about was just the first chapter of Samuel because it's so fascinating to me um, that that we, here we have this family introduced and the main character is is Hannah. You know, it's not her husband. And in the in the, in just you know into the first um couple of verses we're we're finding out about some family things we find out that there's tension early on between um the other wife penina and hannah and so these these kind of like private women's matters that i would think that were not commonly written about by male authors are 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 brought to light and and then even when you know um this whole thing with uh getting pregnant with samuel and and giving birth and and dedicating samuel it's really seems to be about Hannah's relationship with the Lord. And, and there's not a lot of like, Oh God, I'd like to dedicate my son. I need to go have a conversation with my husband. She just kind of announces to her husband, 
hey, I'm going to hang out with Samuel because I'm going to leave him at the temple soon. And he's like, OK, cool. Do your thing. <laughs> um, and I, I I don't know that I have a, a question, just more of an observation. What a what an interesting and beautiful thing as a woman to to read this in the Old Testament where um, this this. This woman is so deeply focused on and the things that matter to her are so deeply focused on. I think this is a good follow up to the conversation that we had in Judges, because um, that is actually a really significant thing uh, for that time period. And it's it's goes far beyond this one story. It traces all the way back to the beginning, because there's actually a certain sense in which the fact that Eve is the one who takes the forbidden fruit, um, it's been used for to say horrible things about women. Um, since then. But what it actually means is that women's actions matter. It's giving agency to Eve because other people writing at the same time wouldn't have cared what the wife did. They would have expected her to do something foolish and the husband would have to come around and, and correct her and, you know, like a 50s sitcom. Uh, but what really mattered is what the man does. And the fact that Eve's actions matter gives her agency. And then as you follow the story through, there is this it happens many times that the Bible cares about what women are thinking and feeling. It cares about how Sarah experiences um, the promises of God and waiting for a um, waiting for a child. It cares about Hagar, which is the most shocking fact that it cares about a slave woman and how she feels through that process and how she's victimized and how she and Sarah get along. The Bible cares about Leah and Rachel, and there it's the same thing where the, this domestic. Ish, uh, tension in the home. And, and you really feel for Leah. You really feel for her as she is um, being treated as the less loved wife. And and in the ancient perspective, that shouldn't matter because women just belonged to their men. And so they should just get along for the sake of the man because he's the one that matters. But the Bible cares about the fact that they have their own journey and their own struggles. And, and not only does the Bible care, but the Bible portrays God caring. It portrays the children that are given to Leah and Rachel as God directly interacting with their struggle. And, and, and then, and you get the same thing as you go into judges where the um, Samuel's mother, who isn't even named is the only person in Samuel's whole story arc that does things right. Like her husband is, is weak and, and ignorant and she has to correct him. Like she has to keep him from getting, from uh, like, like when the angel comes, he doesn't know what to do, but she knows what to do. And she, the, the nine months that she carries Samuel is the only time we know he kept his vows because, uh, sorry, Samuel, Samson. Am I saying, have I been saying Samuel the whole time? I've been talking about Samson in judges. Samson's mother is unnamed. And yet she is the one who understands what's going on. The angel appears to them and Samson's father doesn't know what to do. It's Samson's mother who understands and when and the nine months that Samson's mother carries him in the womb was the only time that he we know he kept his vows. I mean, after that, he's an adult who goes around breaking his vows. Um, and what you see in the Bible, and then and then we talked about Ruth, and you get into um, you get into um, Hannah. The um, there are stories about. Um, David and one of his wives who basically saves her buffoon husband from, from offending David and getting killed. Um, Bathsheba takes initiative to make sure that Solomon actually gets to be king like David promised he would. Like all throughout the Bible, you see these stories of, of women's journeys being validated of both the Bible and God caring about what's going on with them. Um, and, and even portraying them in very positive ways. 
uh, in subtle ways that we may not recognize. Like in chapter one of Samuel, if you look at the way um, Hannah's portrayed versus Eli, Eli thinks she's drunk and barely has any lines. Hannah's the one who understands what's going on and has these eloquent speeches. Um, and, and she's the one who's reasonable and pious. And Eli just comes across as ignorant and, and a little bit buffoonish. Um, and he's supposed to be the high priest. And that is a radical scene in, in that time. So I think when you look for it, and uh, you can see incredibly positive things happening with women in the Bible. And even just to um, the fact that plenty of women that are included with very complex stories or, um, or who are also people that choose very negative paths and do evil and, and the complexity that's shown to us when so often as, as women, even in like modern Hollywood movies, we struggle not to be typecast as either mm-hmm. all good or all bad. Mm-hmm. And, and God made us fully human. You yeah. know, we get to have a, a full journey just as Amanda's and and the old Testament portrays that. And that's really powerful to me. Yeah. One of the, uh, I've read a book recently about, um, about the history of women in the church. And they're talking about how women tend to get reduced to either uh, nuns or prostitutes. And, and which is a way of denying them agency, denying them humanness. And so you're right that I, I will tend to want to draw out the positive things, but it also, like with Eve, the Bible validates their ability to choose just like anyone else. And sometimes they make bad choices because they have that ability too. Um, yeah. You know, with that, with this discussion, I, I appreciate this discussion because out of my ignorance as a male um, part of this this culture and this uh, generation. I recognize that there has been progress made from this time of you know in in scripture, in terms of how women are viewed um, in in culture, at least within the states and some other different countries. I know there's other countries that are still far behind in, in their view of women. Um, while it's not where it needs it needs to be or should be, and you know, again, that's not really my place to be speaking in in that of where it should be or needs to be. But um, when I read this, you know, I'm part of a generation where it, it reads it and, and thinks that's a cool story, um, but it doesn't really occur to me like, oh, how revolutionary this is, mm-hmm. you know, how amazing this is that it's being shared. Because for me, it's like women's stories are heard. Like I hear women's stories. You know, I, we talk about women and the things that they're doing all the time in my family and amongst my friends. And so it's like, it's just a part of, of kind of my, my life, I guess you could say. Um, and so reading this, I'm like a woman's story. That's cool. Um, I enjoyed reading that. Thank you. Um, but without recognizing, well, like, wow, okay, this is here. And that's, that's crazy. Like in terms of the documents from this time, that is unheard of you know Mm -hmm. um and so i just appreciate conversations like this because for me it's like it's a daily part of life you know talking about women and what they're doing in the world because they you know again while it's not where it needs to be it's still like it's more of a thing now than it was was then so for me it's like you know oh yeah calling me back into just how revolutionary that is yeah i i do think though that um we can absolutely get into this place where we're um, just saying back then bad, now good, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, again, more progress, <laughs> more needs, progress to be made. needs to be made. Um, and, uh, you know, 
but but even even um you know read a really interesting article a couple years ago on statistics about um about children's bookshelves and how many of the protagonists will be male versus female and what we're kind of exposing our kids to and one thing i love about um i love about the bible is that as um as a educator of kids, as someone who gets to talk about the Bible to kids of all ages, that there's so many pages that I can turn to throughout the whole Bible and, and show how God is working through men and women, how God is, um, how God is allowing people to choice, how men and women are choosing to reject God or to follow God. And, um, and in that sense, um, despite what a lot of people think right now, the Bible really is timeless because there's always going to be um, in whatever generation there is that we're in, there's always going to be um, so much wisdom because the God who sees me now would have seen me if I was alive in Samuel's time, would have seen me if I was alive in Hagar's time. And that's a constant. Yeah, definitely. You know, there's there's things that um, within scripture that are, I think, are, are the small details that need to stay in the culture that they were in because, you know, that's just, you know, a part of their culture and not a part of ours. But I think there's so many um overall truths and so many overarching truths that are relevant today just as much as they were then and so yeah i'd agree with you on that yeah all righty so i have a couple questions about names um Sorry. names are a huge part of life um <laughs> obviously we i think we all have names most of us have names and the first one is a very simple question so I noticed in reading through First Samuel, the, the first bit here, uh, there's uh, the, the word Ebenezer, and it's Christmas time. So mm -hmm. I thought Ebenezer Scrooge. Yes. And I was wondering, does Ebenezer Scrooge have anything to do to relate to um, in terms of First Samuel? I, I did a Google search when you asked me this question. <laughs> and uh, what I found was there is no consensus on why he chose to name him Ebenezer Scrooge. Okay. Ebenezer was a name back then, and it was a lot more common to use biblical, a, a wider range of biblical names in that time. So you'd find a, um, it, the name was more common. Um, I wonder if its use in that book might be part of the reason why it quickly became less common, although those obscure biblical names have generally fallen out of fashion anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and now we tend to prefer like the he like really Hebrew versions, like not the translated versions. Um, so I, I don't think there is a connection. Alrighty. Sounds good. Well, with within that topic or that topic of names, um, there's been, you know, there, there, there's been a few instances where someone has been named something that is just completely terrible um, or it means something that that's awful. And um, I'm just wondering why why are Israelites kind of choosing names for their children that that mean such awful things? I mean, I'm thinking mm -hmm. specifically of the the example of Ichabod um, in First Samuel. Like, why why choose these terrible names for their kids? Yeah, um, yeah. So Ichabod means no glory, as far as we can tell. There are some others that are like um, in Ruth. Um, Ruth's husband's name is means sickly, and her brother-in-law's name means weak. Um, Jacob means heel grabber, which is also means usurper. Um, Reuben means he has seen my misery. Naphtali means my struggle. The the all-time worst names though have to be the names that God specifically told 
uh, Hosea to give his children. So his daughter, he names um, Jezreel. He's naming her after a, a defeat that's coming, which would be like naming your kid Pearl Harbor. Or if you're a Southerner, like Gettysburg, like America does. I, I was struggling to think of a, a like a full-on defeat that we're like discouraged by still. And I, I, Pearl Harbor or September 11th, like it would be like that as a name for someone. And then Lo Rumah, Lo Rumaha. I'm sorry, Jezreel, I think was a son. Lo Rumaha is a daughter. That means not loved. And Lo Ami means not my people. Um, rough names. Yeah, rough, rough, rough names. names. But I think that's because we, we come to the text with a different expectation of how you choose a person's name. I think the, in the ancient world, they would have an issue with the fact that we seem to choose names at random or just based on how they sound a lot of times. And um, our, our names are not in our language, right? We don't give people English names, uh, maybe last names like Smith or, you know, but our first names tend to come from other languages and they become completely divorced from their meaning. And so a lot of times we'll just pick a name because it sounds good um, or because a relative had it. And in the ancient world, the names had meaning. And um, also giving someone a name had a different significance. It more had a, uh, uh, sense of giving them a purpose or locating them in a story. And so I don't think it would mean the same. It's calling someone not loved back then would not mean the same as if I were to have to tell people that my parents named me not loved because it would not, the, the assumption wouldn't be that it was talking about that they were trying to define my essence or my, their relationship with me. It was more common to have names that had like what we would call political significance. Also, it was common to not have just one name. Um, to uh, people would change their names. So Jacob was heel grabber, and then he be, he's named Israel, which it means wrestles with God. Abram gets his name changed from Abram, which is exalted father, to Abraham, which is father of many. Naomi changes her name. Her name means grace, and she changes it to Mara, which means bitter. Uh, and then Daniel gets his name changed by the king of Babylon to Belteshazzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not their original names. Those were also um, uh, names given to them. And so there wasn't a sense that uh, you, your name could be changed by other people. You could also have different names in different languages in different places. So names just had a very different significance. Um, and it, they just would not have interpreted it the same way if you ended up with a terrible name. Um, I guess it was more, more common and wasn't taken as such a like a personal slight you know still makes it weird and i definitely don't think we should be naming our kids killian and malin and ichabod and stuff like that <laughs> if yeah. that's what they mean <laughs> yeah it, it, yeah it just kind of baffles me every time I, i'm reading through it and i see one of those names i'm like hmm, that's an interesting way to go about it and you know i, I think with with jacob and esau you know esau was born first and jacob came out second and was heel grabber and I guess they just defined that image and said, hey, it's his name is Heel Grabber. And it kind of ended up being a part of his uh, personality, I guess, with the with the kind of euphemism that's, that's yeah. there or whatever. But and everybody's surprised when he cheats them. Like, yeah, it's in his name. <laughs> yes, like, that is his name. Like, really? Like, what are you you saw you were surprised. Um, but I, I it, it would make sense to kind of de describe where they're at in the story, you know, kind of. Um, but it is still just interesting to me. Yeah, it's just a very different culture. And that's, that's one of those reminders that should flag us to say, oh, yeah, this is not in the 21st century. Yeah. yeah. 
We thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Fully Grown Podcast. We hope that you will join us uh, next week. And um, we just wish you to stay healthy. Stay hopeful. And go in peace to love and serve the Lord.